I need not be afraid of the void. The void is part of my person. I need to enter consciously into it. To try to escape it is to try to live a lie. It is to cease to be. My acceptance of despair and emptiness constitutes my being. To have the courage to accept despair is to embrace the void. I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the news story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 120 of Embrace the Void, where we remain one void experiencing itself. I am your host, Aaron, and this week I'm joined by another intrepid Twitter knot for our ongoing discussions about debates within academia. Um, as is often the case, this turns to discussions of race, and we even have a meta discussion about why race is such a constant in these conversations. So, hope you enjoy. Let's cue the music. My guest this week is Mansa Kita, a computer science PhD with a penchant for lengthy Twitter debates, at Roz Mansa on Twitter. Uh, Mansa, would you like to say hi to the void? Uh, hi, the void. Um, <laughs> uh, it's interesting to meet everyone. But, uh, you know, the thing I always wonder is when I listen to your show and I hear the voices of people I talk to online, it always mm-hmm. sort of trips me out to see if it matches like what I would have imagined. Oh yeah, so now, does it does it often not match? Uh, some of them match really well, and some of them it's like, whoa, didn't expect that. Like, I think one like Bo. I think that was the first time I heard uh, Bo Weingard's voice, uh-huh. and it kind of like really like, wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, voices so. are weird. I can't stand to listen back because I just can't handle it. But um, <laughs> it is an amusing topic. So mm-hmm. thanks for joining me. Um, I follow you a bunch on Twitter, and I find your conversations there very interesting when I can manage to follow them. And I wanted to have you on to talk about that some. But first, I thought maybe you could tell folks a bit about like your background, your work, um, before we dive into the culture wars some. Yeah. So interestingly, what I do um, in my everyday life and what I talk about on Twitter don't really um, match up all that well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I did my PhD computer science in AI, um, went right to the corporate world. You know, I, I looked around for a few academic jobs, but mm-hmm. the corporate world was just quicker to respond. Like within my first interview, I got hired um, and I've been in the corporate world. I've done pretty well in there. So a few promotions in there. So I'm like, middle management now, I guess, in, a, uh-huh. in the corporate world. So it's it's pretty happy and stable. So I work in big data, find a nice niche in there, uh-huh. um, build some teams and stuff like that in there. So, Do, do you feel like you're, you're serving a dark master and working for big data in that kind of way? Oh, you know, I don't even get into that side of it because <laughs> okay. I'm fascinated, and maybe this will tie into some of the other stuff, I'm sort of fascinated by what can be done mm-hmm. um you know just like what we can it's almost dark but the things you can figure out with data um so like even data science the fact that you could tell mm-hmm. i would tell people about netflix right like you could i could tell you you're gonna love this movie and you're like no i'm not and then you watch and you're like okay fine i really did love that movie um, uh-huh so you think, that, that's, you think it's mostly a good thing that we can predict people ooh. more that way I think it just is, right? I don't know if it's good or bad. Um, again, so it's just, it's fascinating to me that people all think they're very unique and different and special in a sense. And in a lot of ways, we're pretty predictable and we're pretty normal. 
And I think mm-hmm. that's sort of how I got into even like looking at genetics and like following those people. Mm-hmm. It's just to see like we all think we're, you know, we all think these things about ourselves and about others. And then, you know, here comes these uh, these scientists and they look and they're like, oh, yeah, you're just this or, you know, mm-hmm. these things yeah, just put sense. together. Yeah. Yeah. You get so. into the um, explanations and differences and all those sorts of things. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any other particularly interesting hot takes that you wanted to throw out on your <laughs> AI front? Oh, wow. So uh, I always get into this with my friends who are like, you know, I'm not going to sign up for Twitter because I don't want, I don't want those big companies to have my data. Mm-hmm. Um, or the people who are like, I'm going to delete Facebook because, you know, I don't want them to have my data. And having worked sort of on the back end of all this, People have no idea. How much <laughs> they already it, have your data. <laughs> it's too late. Yeah. So I always tell people the whole thing of like, you know, you're going to hide. It's too late. And and in terms of sadly, what people um, like me figure out how to do is, um, mm-hmm. you know, Google finds every single way to track you. And the funny thing is, you know, the ways they track you best are the ways you are happy to be tracked, but you don't know you're being tracked. Right. Uh-huh. Like, you know, people don't, I don't know. It doesn't trip people out that you sit in your car and your car is like, okay, well, 20 minutes to get to work today. And you're like, wait, how did you know I sat in the car? Uh-huh. But like, it's clearly been collecting a bunch of location data to figure out, um, or an, an activity data to figure out when you wake up and when you get in your car. So what GPS location is your garage? Uh-huh. Um, it's already planned out your route. So it knows where you work. You don't have to tell Google where you work for it to know where you work or, and yeah. you know, I've actually worked with those algorithms where it's like, okay, well, this is when someone's asleep. This is when they're awake. Um, you could even figure out when someone's eating dinner. It's kind of cool, but dark. Yeah, I, um, I, I coach an ethics bull team at the school I teach at, and we had a case this year on whether the police should be allowed to subpoena that kind of uh, data for the sake of, you know, if they know that a crime is committed in a certain area and they've narrowed it down somewhat, can they, like, see whether someone was tracked there in various ways via Google? See, I, I, uh, this is where my civil libertarian side kicks in. So okay. <laughs> my answer would be very clearly no. Um, so you're okay with the corporations having the data but not the government? It's not a matter if it's okay. It's, it's just that it's... <laughs> it's too late and it was mm-hmm. voluntary right like people didn't understand so mm-hmm. actually i would support um governments strongly regulating this stuff so like gdpr in europe mm-hmm. um the data privacy rules i actually really like those and some countries are actually way more strict than europe i think like singapore is way more strict like you could legit write a company and say please delete every bit of data you have on me and they mm-hmm. must comply right so Things like that, I really think, are a good idea. Um, where you own your data, uh-huh. um, or a company has to be super explicit in, we're going to take this data, and here's exactly how we're going to use it. And any deviation from that, um, you know, could get them in serious trouble. And I mean, some of these laws in some of these countries are pretty extreme for data privacy, where like an exec could go to jail because it turns out, you know, mm-hmm. they misuse people's data. Um, so I actually support those, but the problem you run into is almost every corporation sets themselves up in a way where they're subject only to the data rules that are the most lax. So mm-hmm. GDPR, for example, mm-hmm. said if you're working with anybody in Europe, you must comply, which is actually pretty solid. Uh, but some of them say that if your company is based here, you must follow these rules, which is you know generally terrible since corporations could move fairly easy a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, about- so it's... Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> No, just curious about the like complicated like three hour um, tutorials that like tell you that they can get you erased from the internet for the most part. Like nonsense, nonsense. Okay, absolute nonsense. And and that's the thing. Like people have no idea the ways they're tracked. So like Google and um, uh, Apple, you know, have these uh, these rules that uh, people working with their systems must follow, like how to track their ad IDs. They're called. Uh-huh. But at the same time, and they'll say, like, it has to be anonymous. It mustn't identify the person. Uh-huh. Um, but come on, like, if any, you have decent computer kids or computer scientists sitting around, I could figure out who you are, right? Mm-hmm. Like, right. if I have enough of your information, I could legit figure out, okay, this is Aaron. This is exactly where Aaron lives. This is what Aaron does. Here's Aaron on a different device. And when we think of all the devices we have in our house, 
Mm-hmm. Good companies could put these all together, especially when you get to the place where you find out the big companies now actually trade data. So like mm-hmm. Netflix, you know, it came out, I think, a couple of years ago that Netflix and uh, Facebook were sharing data, right? Right, or, makes sense. Or like, so now anything Facebook knows about you, Netflix knows about you, but realize that Facebook isn't just Facebook. It's Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, um, and like a couple other platforms that are all part of Facebook. And right. They, or even the darker part is that I don't need you to be on my platform to know who you are because if you are in your friend's phone book and your friend signs up for my platform and gives me access to their phone book, I now know who you are, mm-hmm. right? Because I mm-hmm. see your name, your phone number, and then I go hook up with one of my ad partners, for example, and I look for that phone number and you use your phone number to sign up for something else. And now I have more information on you. So I could completely have a profile of someone who's never, ever been you know, involved mm-hmm. with me directly, right? It's um, thoroughly voidy. I appreciate that as a warm-up. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah. So uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about your bio-wise before we get into talking about your Twitter wars, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned on Twitter that you're a Rastafarian, and I don't think we've had a Rastafarian on the show before, so I was curious <laughs> what that means for you. Um, so I think, I don't know, a lot of people know about Rastas, but whenever someone asks, uh, says to me, what's a Rasta believe? I think it's, I always tie them back. Have you ever listened to Bob Marley's music? Mm-hmm. When they say yes, I'm like, okay, that's my religion. Because mm-hmm. Bob Marley was like deeply Rastafari. And so mm-hmm. his music like was just running, like flowing through with it. Um, and I think the key, you know, the key element, and I actually have like a poster looking right in front of me right now. It's, it's uh, One Love. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just, and, 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 and another key concept, I guess it's I and I. And the idea is together is that we're all essentially one, right? So mm-hmm. um, you're my brother, uh, you're my neighbor. Um, and actually, I think the nicest way I, I, I used to take it for people is if you take the golden principles, um, you know, from the Bible, uh, or the golden commandment, I think it's called, uh, I modify it a bit, love God, love yourself, and love your neighbor as yourself. And sort mm-hmm. of everything follows from that, right? I think we overcomplicate life, but if you just look at it as that basic element, you know, I would want to be treated a certain way. So I treat my neighbor that way. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if I fall down and somebody could help me up, I would expect them to. So I'd help that person. You know, if I suddenly ran out of food and I was starving, I would hope somebody would give me food. So, you know, I should do the same for somebody else. Um, Yeah. And it, it becomes so basic in a sense. And I think it's a very so, straightforward kind of ethics. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just love. But it, it so I, I took it a bit more radical personally, because, mm-hmm. you know, there are fundamentalist uh, Rastas, um, you know, mm-hmm. some there's some homophobia going there a lot. Um, but mm-hmm. I, so for me, when I decided to, uh, to be Rasta, it's, I took it to the extreme and that, you know what? Um, my love shouldn't have bounds. Uh, yeah, so. right. One love except for gay people seemed a little weird. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a little questionable at times. But so I, I I took it as far as like there are no bounds. So I love <laughs> everybody. I love the person who hates me. I love and and that that holds true for a lot of the older asses too. They do love people who say like hate them and stuff. So. <laughs> And that does segue, I think, a little bit beautifully into our discussion of your Twitter wars, because I've, mm-hmm. I've noticed that it seems like you you revel in, in engaging with individuals who, if not hate you, certainly at least strongly disagree with you on a variety of mm-hmm. subjects and perhaps have certain views about you or groups that they may see you as a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm curious, is it, does this stuff sort of flow into the way that you engage in those kind of ways? And do you find that you're at least somewhat able to engage with these individuals in these back and forths in a way that's productive? Yeah, probably. So (laughs) I don't, I I think I've, I've grown up in a family where we sort of always debated stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, our normal family gathering for us is we get together, we find some random topic after like 20 minutes and then we have like a lively debate where everyone's voice goes up. Um, but at the end of it, it's like, okay, well, that was fun. And then, you, you know, you continue, you hang mm-hmm. out. Um, mm-hmm. So it never should diminish the love. And I sort of still run with that. So and I always found that I question my own perspectives a lot. So mm-hmm. if I, if somebody disagrees with me, 
I sort of want to understand why. Like, and I don't go to it as like this person's an idiot. Like, mm-hmm. why would they disagree with me? I'm, I I often think maybe they're they're coming from a different angle, um, and I wanna I wanna understand their angle before I disagree. Right. So, you know, if I could see what you're saying, I want to be able to say. So I always play this rule, and I I think some people actually there's a term for this or a, a method to to this madness. Um, I should be able to describe back to you what you mm-hmm. believe and you agree with me. And then I could say you're wrong. Right? Yeah. It's like, a mediating technique, mirroring, where yeah. you um, just repeat back to them what they said in your own words and see if you got it right. Essentially mm-hmm. is a really good technique. Yeah. And I think people are owed that because, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of, so I've written, I wrote, wrote the article about intersectionality. And I think a lot of the problems with sort of even the culture war debates is people can't see from the other person's perspective. So we all assume like, you know, everyone is coming from our own. So if somebody disagrees with us, it's because, you know, there's something wrong with them as opposed to maybe they've just never encountered it or maybe they've never thought of it. And Mm -hmm. even like the social justice stuff, that's sort of a lot of how I became, you know, I guess I'm one of the social justice types. It's, It's because I sort of realized there are a lot of things where I thought I was an educated person or I thought I was a socially aware person. And then I mm-hmm. learned something new and it's like, wow, how did I not see that? And it was there the whole time. It's just, it wasn't a, almost, it wasn't relevant to me in a sense, because in a sense, I believe you're not made to see some stuff that don't affect you. Mm-hmm. And then, so, so when I came to see it, it's like, oh, okay, what else am I missing? Uh huh. Yeah. So how do you see the culture wars today then from your, um, developed social justice warrior perspective and what sort of like <laughs> misconceptions do you feel like folks have about this kind of discourse? Oh, there's so much. And sometimes people will bring it up and sometimes I'll agree with them. Um, you know, like things like um, like racism, right? For example, mm-hmm. which is the one, one we talk about a lot. I honestly feel like people are just seeing it differently. And, and because sometimes when I talk to people, I flip it back, right? I'll flip it to male and female because uh, I find people are less defensive like other men let's mm-hmm. say are less defensive when i'm talking about male female and i'm talking about like black white mm-hmm. and so i'll talk about how here's something which i couldn't see um and then i thought about somebody showed me something and i, I saw that i was missing something so like um mm-hmm. on things like people look for what's your definition of racism or like is that really racist and i'm Sometimes it's frustrating because, you know, from my perspective, I I scream internally. I'm like, yes, it is very, very obvious. How could you not see this? And then I sort of have to check myself and say, okay, you know, it kind of does make sense. Like a person who, you know, if you've never sort of grown around like the thing, like where racism like gets you or gets people around you, Mm-hmm. It's hard to see. It's hard to see. So sometimes I'll see someone like a black person, for example, react and say, that was racist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a, a white person might look and say, why? Why is it racist? And the black person's coming from a, I've been through this 500 times and I've, you know, I've been well trained. You know, it's like sports. You've done it 500 times. You sort of have an idea of what's happening. Right. Mm-hmm. And this other person, you know, for them, it's not a thing. Um, so to see it this one time, they're like, oh, it's just like, an isolated incident um yeah and it's, it's like it's, language right where you have to see it were used in context a lot of times to yeah. really understand the nuances of term of the, exactly. what people are really saying exactly yeah for sure and so like even the racism stuff when it'll come up like sometimes it'll come up and, and someone will say this is racist and another person will come yep yeah, that's definitely racist and then that mm-hmm. third person will come and say no why is it racist at all and i sort of have to remember you know to grant them sometimes the benefit of the doubt um that maybe they don't see it and even if i explain it to them maybe they still won't get it mm-hmm. um but you try to hope so you give them something and i know a lot of the times I, i've been in enough arguments that you know people immediately jump to defensiveness so I, mm-hmm. i'm not going to i accept that i'm not going to change someone's mind in that moment but if they could leave and think about it think about what i said or I'll even think about what they said. I think that's worth it. Especially if, you know, you come back the next day. and I, I've seen people where you see they've moved somewhat, mm-hmm. even if they don't say it. Because sometimes people are really bad at, like, saying, shoot, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'll see that they've moved. And so I sort of take 
that to me is success is to see someone has changed somewhat they, their views have evolved somewhat they've updated their priors if you will somewhat um, yeah it's certainly the golden dream if you can ever get there right it seems <laughs> like um so i'm curious why you think so often right as you said it happens quite frequently this comes these conversations that you were often engaged in on twitter come around to issues of human biodiversity and race it seems to me from my perspective that like this is sucking up a disproportionate amount of oxygen in the like academic twitter biosphere that these kinds of conversations are just everywhere it seems like and i'm curious why you think that might be you know i actually completely agree with what you just said i don't think it's that big um as in, like, I think there's a, you know, a contingent that for them, this is that topic and they believe like they've found something and they've got something super solid and everyone should adopt it. Mm-hmm. But I actually think it's really fringe, right? And I think if you look at the numbers, if you look in academia, these views are pretty fringe. Like their beliefs are pretty fringe. Um, but they do cause, for me at least, they cause um, they cause harm, right? And so... If someone, I'm not worried about those people per se. I'm worried about the person who doesn't know much and mm-hmm. has some intuitions of things and then get exposed to these. And then, you know, it's the driven home to them, right? Or like the, the politicians, you know, some politicians will randomly cite some articles like, well, you know, this makes sense because these, these people are different or something. Mm-hmm. Um and and we're we're accustomed, I think, in the mainstream to dismissing it as like, wow, that's bigoted. Um, so those people are bigoted, and it was just, it's always sort of, it was weird to me at least to find out that there's this, you know, segment of Twitter, if you will, or academia that sort of aim to validate those views as a no, you're not bigoted. This is perfectly fine to believe that, right? Per- perfectly fine to believe these people are fundamentally different. Um, yeah. Or, or at least perfectly fine to research this, right? I think a large part of the argument is now shifted to like, you know, we're not saying anyone is definitely different. We're saying it's important to study the differences if there are any and try to figure out what they are. You see, for that, actually, I have, and I've said this online too, I have no issues at all with research. Like I could legitimately mm-hmm. think your topic is ridiculous and stupid um, and you should be able to research it. I have no issues with that, actually. Um, mm-hmm. It is it's almost always when it becomes a truth claim. When someone says, yes, this is true, or this is very likely true, or mm-hmm. um, it's probably the case that those are when I get, okay, I'm, I'm tweaking a little bit. This isn't okay. Um, but if someone's willing to say, I think, so I'm going to go look, I'm going to go do the actual work to see if mm-hmm. I'm correct. Here's what I found. And, you know, academia, you know, people who've been in academia, it's a very, you know, a niche sort of environment people publish a paper and maybe 10 people read it and then they debated it back and forth for a bit um occasionally you have a paper that hits like a thousand people citing it but generally most papers sort of just happen and no one it's not a big deal so someone wants to research and there's a few of them and they spent 20 years researching and they find something great bring it forward and let's see how it goes um, it's when you take something like, I think this random thing might be true maybe in five, ten years, and then you push mm-hmm. it as this is the truth. And those who disagree with me are denying the truth. Um, that's when I have a problem. Yeah. Can you give some examples of ones that you feel like you frequently come across where people are like, I'm I'm pretty confident in this or think that it will be thoroughly proven in the oh near future, gosh. if not, you know, like, <laughs> are there are there ones that you feel like There's... are just like on repeat all the time? Oh, it's the same ones, and we know they're the same ones. So, like, the race stuff, for example, the biological race stuff. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I know they, they had a bunch of testable ideas of race, of what race was. And, I, you know, I could read these papers, and I often often tell people, don't be afraid of engaging these things. Because like, you'll read these papers, and these ideas are, like, highly debunked, right? And that's mm-hmm. the reason they're now fringe, right? Because in the mainstream, people spent decades looking at them like no nah, this is terrible let's move on um but at the same time you will still see it come up you'll still see it like no there are clearly different races and you know mm-hmm. it kind of annoys me how the language will shift to always you know sort of sidestep what's been found so like you know there's beliefs you know at one point um the multiple origins belief was like pretty standard and then when that got thrown out 
and the language mm-hmm. just shifted a bit. So suddenly race wasn't about, you know, people with different um, origins as evolutionary origins to, okay, fine, we all have the same origins, but now race means this other things. And it just always moves just slightly off mm-hmm. to the side where, you know, anything that's been used to debunk it is now, well, they didn't really answer this specific version of the question. I think the most ridiculous one I saw was somebody tried to define race as like your uh, matrilineal haplotype. So like the mother's line. And I thought that was, okay. you see like the most The, the Jewish definition, right? Mother's line. Oh yeah. But they tried to use that for races in general. I'm like, how quickly okay. does that fall apart though? Right. Yeah. <laughs> There's so uh, I many mean, haplotypes, right? So like, because mm-hmm. like, Let's say within Judaism, uh, like, um, you know, the Jewish population today, like there's mm-hmm. a simple mutation because mutations just pop up. Right. When, mm-hmm. you know, like one woman has a daughter and her daughter has a mutated haplotype. Is her daughter now a different race? Like she's no longer Jewish. Mm. Um, I think anyone would think that's pretty ridiculous. Right. And, and just right. I think that's the thing with these definitions they come up with is almost always you could just look at it a certain way and say that's it falls apart all so quickly, but uh-huh. they'll always sort of, they never acknowledge that it falls apart. They'll always just move like one step further of like, um, vagueness. Yeah. yeah. I do often experience it like moving goalposts or a shell oh, game yeah. or something like that. I'm curious, do you think that it's ever valuable to talk about race? Do you feel like there are some contexts in which it's useful mm-hmm. to use these kinds of categories? So uh, I, I separate, uh, the biological stuff mm-hmm. and the social stuff. Biological race is absolute nonsense, has no utility ever anywhere. Um, socially, only in one context for me. Like, if, if it's not about racism, there's no point. It, it serves no other purpose. If you're talking about, um, you know, if your discussion is racism, okay, race sort of makes sense. If you're, and, and this works both ways, right? Because if you're talking about differences, it's mm-hmm. all about, um, does, you know, if for me, if, if you, um, if some policy affects different groups, races here differently, then to me, that's mm-hmm. still racism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so only within that sort of context does it ever make sense. But generally speaking, oh, and I know people use it just as a, a quick description, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. what does that person look like? Okay, they're white. But I separate, say, um, complexion from even the idea of race, like, mm-hmm. we, you know, and, and people who know the history of race and their definitions, the social definitions will know why that makes sense. Right. Cause even with um, Ashkenazi Jews, for example, you know, you look at them, they, we pass a lot of them. They, <laughs> yeah. They pass, right. They look like, they look like the guy, typical uh, guy from England or something, but you know, there's this whole thing about like, well, are they white? All right. Um, right. And you have that with other people with like Italians, of course. Right. Well, yeah, they had that history. Even the Irish, right? Who today mm-hmm. you look at, you look at an Irish person, um, depending, you know, mighty pale. But there was a time where they were thought not to be white, or the Nazis didn't consider the Polish white, which is so. Mm-hmm. It's it's so I separate complexion from even mm-hmm. the, the the concept, the social concept of race. Um, right. It's but more about how of, people treat the person based on their yeah, phenotypes, it's, right? Than it's, any it's very political, right? Mm-hmm. And I think so. I've, I've said my perfect world will be when um, this doesn't exist. And I actually think if someone's an anti-racist, it has to be that, right? So if you okay. could, if you see race and racism as intricately um, intertwined, then a world where there is no racism is a world where there is no race. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> where you're just talking about a person you might use their complexion but i you know i've never really seen a person who's actually black right like you're dark Mm -hmm. brown or (laughs) Uh um, and depending on whether the person's blushing someone might be pink or pinkish Um, so 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 let me let me drill down on one of the distinctions that's often brought up when we people talk about these group differences and one where people i think want to claim that there's the most scientific backup for it which would be the issue of iq um, proponents. I mean, so like folks who who cite IQ will frequently cite correlation between IQ and good outcomes as a way to show that like IQ is tracking something that has some kind of adaptive advantage to it. And then I think they they want to point to data that you know there is some data that shows 
variants among different groups and then they sort of charles murray those things together in some kind of way so what do you what do you think about that is that sufficient to show that there are real important iq differences or how do you approach the iq questions iq is always an interesting one um Mm -hmm. so i'll disagree with some people i think there's nothing wrong with uh iq per se right like even it is a proxy right so it's not perfect um it is in a sense constructed to measure certain things um, and not measure certain things um and that's still sort of okay Mm -hmm. um i don't think i think the fact that there are differences don't really bother me per se either Mm -hmm. i think iq is overemphasized because I did ask this question, I think, a few days ago. Like, who actually knows their friends' IQs? Who knows their IQs? Um, You know, I'll talk to some people who think, like, oh, I have, like, a high IQ. And I'll think to myself, no, you don't. Right? (laughs) In a sense, like, I'm thinking you're not actually that intelligent, right? And and Mm -hmm. um, So, yeah, we'll have those situations where I think that person isn't that smart. Or they think they're super smart, or they think their friends are super smart. And every, no one ever thinks I am a low IQ person, right? mm-hmm. do they? I, I don't really think that's a thing people encounter. Um, um, I mean, I, I've known some people who thought they were low IQ individuals. Actually, oh yeah, okay. I mean, I think that usually probably means they're slightly above average. But um, <laughs> right? yeah, I, I get so, what you're saying that like um, you know a lot of people tend to think that they are um, substantially above average which, which statistically speaking would be impossible right right so I think I think as a measure um, you know there is some utility to it I think some of the outcomes arguments is kind of weird to me because um, it doesn't the, the direction the causality direction doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily make sense to me so if we're saying someone has a high IQ, and they, you know, they end up in a good job. Well, is it because they have, um, you know, they actually have an, an, a high IQ that they end up in a good job? Because like Donald Trump is president, but I wouldn't think he's that smart, like just hearing him talk, right? Mm-hmm. So is it, his, is it his IQ that got in there? So is he really mm-hmm. got a secretly high IQ or is it other factors? Like the fact that, you know, his dad gave him a few hundred million dollars. Um, Seems more likely that one probably yeah so like a lot of these people you'll see in these high positions and people conclude that they're smart because they're in these high positions like you know mm-hmm. i've met ceos that aren't to me that bright right mm-hmm. but based right. on that if you, people would assume they have an, a high iq and i'm like did anyone actually test this person's iq to, to know right mm-hmm. um, right and then you get into issues of like the tests you know you can you can get better on the tests by studying so there's i i don't i don't dismiss them for things like that i think that's mm-hmm. That's fine. I don't even think, from what I've heard, you don't move generally that much by studying okay. for them. But I do think, you know, the result will match your life, right? Like if you're living a lifestyle um, or you've grown up in a, in a place where you've never had to do a certain type of problem solving, mm-hmm. um, then if there's a test that tests your ability to do that problem solving, it's sort of logical to me that you won't do that well on it. Does it prove you're not a smart person? I think not, right? So I'll use an example. I never actually pondered this one before. Mm-hmm. You know, you have uh, during uh, slavery, right? Um, let's say a guy's job his entire life was to pick cotton, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. So he's never had to solve a writing problem. And I think actually you know, Lynn got in trouble because this was among the things he was testing with, right? In his Africa numbers. Um, mm-hmm. And then one day you give him a pencil and paper and say, solve this problem, right? Mm-hmm. That guy's never encountered this before. He apparently doesn't know how to use a pencil. And you expect him to solve these complex problems. That doesn't mean there's anything fundamentally wrong with him. His entire life, he's never encountered this before. If he had a different life, grew up differently, where, you know, every day he was, you know, faced with these problems, then I would expect he'd be able to solve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and or like if somebody never encountered language, expecting them to suddenly be able to learn language is sort of not the way our brain seems to work. Not very fair. And, and actually, I remember reading at one point that in some other cultures, right, some of the, say, third world cultures where computers aren't as ubiquitous, um, you will see barter systems equivalently where, or you go to shop uh, to markets and you'll make a deal with them and you'll see their ability to quickly do like, Mm-hmm. on like how much your change is or how much you should get or like how these things work together and what's worth trading 
Right. And it's actually like really complicated. And I don't think, you know, a lot of the smart people I see, you can't figure that out. And, and actually a good, good example, I guess, would be what we call street smarts, right? Like you yeah, go, situated learning. Yeah. I was just thinking of the wire. Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah, exactly. There you go. Like you're trying to negotiate with somebody who's got skill at their trade. Right. And you mm-hmm. will, you will end up losing everything. It doesn't mean like you're not smart, but that person on an IQ test, if they've never encountered sort of the questions that you put on IQ tests, um, might do terribly. And to me, yeah. I've met a ton of smart people where I know they could do very well on a test. And I know a lot of people who I've seen do amazing on a test. And then in a normal situation, I'm like, mm, you can't function right now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a sequence in The Wire that I show my students when I teach them about situated cognition. And it's a it's a part where like one of the, you know, young children runners um, is like trying to solve math problems for his homework assignments and he can't do it. And like the other guy asks, gets him to close his eyes and try to imagine, you know, you have X number of vials of cocaine left or crack or whatever it is. Right. And you're going to like, you know, you, you get five more and you, you take you sell five and set her back and forth. And of course, he gets it exactly right. And he asks him, you know, how come you can do it there but not in the book? And he says, well, look, if I get if I get the count wrong, I get beat. That's the difference. So. Right. I, so things like that. Right. So that's how I look at things like IQ tests. If you construct, mm-hmm. it is trying to look at something real. But if you construct the tests a certain way, you communicate them away, um, you know, where somebody's more familiar with the terminology or mm-hmm. even the context, that person is expected to do better. Um, right. Yeah. So I'm curious what you think, sort of moving away from the science side a little bit to like the politics side of it, do you feel like there are taboos preventing some kinds of valuable research? Do you feel like there are like some of these claims about, you know, the people in social science, like my friend Bo, who, you know, seem to repeatedly say that there are people being sort of chilled out of discussing certain things. I don't know how you do you assess that at all? Discussing, Yes. That's, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll go with that, right? And, and okay. to me, I, I've mentioned before, I think on other threads, apparently I've been on Twitter too much. Um, I don't actually think the idea of self-censorship is as bad as people play it out to be. We've mm-hmm. grown, you know, your entire life you've self-censored, right? Um, you know, as a kid, your mom would say something and you totally disagree with her, but you know better than to talk back at this moment. Um, so that's self-censorship, right? Your boss says something and you disagree. You're not going to call him, you know, what you might have if you were online and you're you know, just talking to yourself. That's self-censorship. Um, if you want to say like a type of person is, you know, inferior because of who they are, I would mm-hmm. hope you self-censor and I'm totally cool with that. Right. Um, Unless so you have an overwhelming amount of data, right? Like, if uh, do, you, do you split the difference between no, discussing okay. and researching? So, like, do you think it's worthwhile to research okay. this? And yeah. Uh-huh. So now, research. I've always had the view that research, because of the credibility given to researchers and scientists, the burden, um, the threshold uh, to go public should be higher. Mm. Um, if I'm going to say something, and it doesn't have to be something controversial, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, if I think I have a finding, my burden should be higher. I shouldn't just say, oh, um, you know, I think, I can't think of a really good example right now. I think this thing is true, right? Um, mm-hmm. If people are going to sit, to listen to me and people are going to run with that, because you know, I guess a, a, a common everyday version of it is, you know, you might you might say something and it takes it's much harder to correct sort of a misconception than mm-hmm. to, to, to set it out there. Right. Like the anti-vax stuff was pretty much one of that. Right. One guy, uh, Wakefield, mm-hmm. I think his name yep. is, wrote one paper and now it's been decades and we're still trying to deal with anti-vax beliefs. Right. Because of this one guy. I think if yep. he was a bit more judicious and enough people sort of paid attention like to his Lancet article before it went even in the Lancet. So like the reviewers had done their jobs kind of thing or mm-hmm. people hadn't so easily trusted. Um, and the newspapers hadn't so quickly republished it and broadcast it all over the place. We could have avoided sort of a lot of misconceptions. And now at the academic level, enough academics could say, yep, Wakefield stuff was garbage and it's useless and it's false. But mm-hmm. You know, it's not the world isn't just academics. So that normal person who believes, you know, if I vaccinate my kid, you know, I'm going to give them autism or something. 
um, they're not reading the papers debunking Wakefield, right? No one sits around reading academic papers all the time because one, they're very long and they're very kind of tedious right. and very you know, niche again. Yeah, I and mean, it seems like a lot of the incentives are slanted towards quickly promoting controversial um, yeah. positions of various sorts, right? Like the the publishers uh, from you know in the academic side as well, they want they don't want yep. reproductions of old things or disproving that you know like uh, yeah. reproducibility kind of stuff. They want you know shiny fancy new claims a lot of the time. And then you, we all are familiar with like how science media writing is these days where like oh, it's like one one study and like tell us that the whole world has been turned on its head and it's yep. you know science at this point says. just don't trust any right any of those kinds of things exactly. initially um yep. so yeah I, do, I think you're right that there is sort of a higher burden of of responsibility on people that they um do need to face um i guess i'm curious like on the flip side of all of this do you feel like some of these beliefs are you're sort of talking that self-censorship is good right are you so would you say that like some beliefs are harmful enough that like we should back off even engaging with them because we're just feeding them more oxygen no never um okay. I'm, <laughs> is that just so your biases of liking to argue <laughs> <laughs> no i'm perfectly fine so like with somebody researching taboo topics i could care less if um you know let's say if they find something well okay now let's let's talk it through right Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I, I, I'm fine. And, and so even on the other side to engage with these things, I think you need engagement. And in, in essence, you're in a weird place where the people, you need the right people to engage. So mm-hmm. one call I've often made on even like the race stuff is that I wish more academics got into it. Um, mm-hmm. people who know better got into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and on some topics you will see it, right? Like I've seen some of these experts, um, on the threads I've gotten into where they come in and they win. I think recently, like um, I'm probably going to butcher his name, but uh, Owen Bernie, mm-hmm. um, he started like, they published that uh, blog article or that article uh, talking about this stuff. And then the pushback he got and he, his reaction was, Holy crap, this thing is way worse than I thought. Like this racism <laughs> thing is way bigger. And, and to me, that's, it, it's sort of the truth, right? Because, this thing mm-hmm. is out there and these academics are usually to put it, you know, I don't want to be mean, but like, you know, you're cloistered in the ivory tower and you don't see it because the people around you are generally, they know better already, or you're surrounded by other experts in your field mm-hmm. and they don't sort of realize the, what's going on in, out in the world. Like what someone's just putting out as you know, uh, quote unquote debate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think more of those people need to come out and, you know, not only like confront the misuse of their work, um, but also just to raise the education level. So like on genetics, I've learned tons from just being, you know, Hmm. among these people and watching them talk. And it's like, wow, okay, this is sort of cool. Right. So then I go learn, but not everyone wants to do that. So a lot of people defer to authority. Mm -hmm. And so like, you'll see like someone will say the experts really believe this thing. It's nice to have the experts say, yep, we believe that thing. Or mm-hmm. so I, one big example is when Noah, Nicholas Wade um, wrote his, his thing about uh, race, the different races. And I think he broke people down into three races or some nonsense. Mm-hmm. And I think 143 of the people he cited, which was kind of awesome, um, wrote the open letter saying pretty much everything he said was idiotic. Oh, um, nice. I, and I thought that was really cool. Um, and, and sort of one of the things I liked about that is the people who all came out and said he was idiotic, these are known like experts. Hmm. Um, and some of them have controversial views, right? Or some of them like believe some controversial things might be quite possible. But when it came to it, they were willing to stand up and say, okay, no, that's too much. That's wrong. And I nice. think at least we should see that. So. You know, even people who write controversial things, if you write controversial things and you know people are going to take it a certain direction, if you don't speak out when they do, mm-hmm. I think it's really hard for for me to, like, believe you're honestly opposed to it being taken in that direction, right? Yeah, that's a good um, point. Yeah. I, I agree. And I do think that some people often play a kind of naive game about 
not understanding why certain ideas might pose a higher risk to people's well-being than other ideas. That's sort of this, like, very, you know, um, oh, well, everything is just pure platonic ideas and there's nothing <laughs> impacting reality in any kind of All way. All in a vacuum, right? Right. In the void, if you will. <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, I was curious because you also mentioned that you had shifted your views a little bit on the the sort of terminology or the accusations around the idea of pseudoscience. So you're talking about like getting real scientists involved here. Do you think that they should be telling, like, like literally saying this thing is pseudoscience and what does that really, what does that concept mean for you at this point? Um, so on the first one, uh, yes, I, I believe um, actually. So, okay. I'll, I'll rephrase it um, okay. because yes, I did shift. Um, you know, I actually do update my views quite a bit when I talk to people. And actually, the person I'll give credit for this one, he'll probably like this, is actually Ben. So Ben Weingard. Okay. Um, so, and, and, you know, the other philosophers have pushed me, but I think his was when I finally, like, okay, fine, I'm going to update. Um, you know, when I started talking about science, what I learned of his science was, like, really strict. And, and then I, like, when I went on Twitter and I talked to philosophers of science who I'd never hung out with in university, I found out mm -hmm. it was uh, popper, uh, popperian um, mm -hmm. viewpoints, right? Um, you know, you need a hypothesis. You need some way of testing it. You need a way of being able to know if it's, it's false or not. You got to run some experiments and then somebody else has to do it mm -hmm. um, be, or be able to do it. And generally, I'll put the rule that the person who's able to do it must effectively hate you and think you're a terrible scientist and you're an idiot and you're a liar. And then if they could challenge it um, and reproduce mm -hmm. your work, or they can't falsify your work, but they're actively going at it. And they say, okay, fine. Like, I can't beat this thing. Then you're good, right? And if it's you like an adversarial kind of approach. It has to be adversarial, right? So I know Popper's rule is like, if you're just searching for confirmation, is like this lines up. And to me, that means nothing. If 20 people agree with you, mm -hmm. um, and they, yeah, look, I found things that support you. That means nothing to me. Find right. me that guy who, you know, really thinks you're full of it. And then he tries to take you down and then he walks out and is like, okay, fine, you got me. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, I'm, I'm sort of giving you more credibility. Um, so, so you were a naive Popperian is what you're saying, right? <laughs> you believe in the falsification of uh, hypotheses and whatnot. So what shifted? Uh, well, I'm still still in a lot of ways there. So okay. Again, the shift is it's ongoing, if you will, right? I'm softening. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, for me, so I, I read... People told me about Kuhn's views, for example, and I sort of read. Um, and then I think as I debate these hot topics, if you will, uh, I, it sort of hit me about something, right? We will look at the exact same facts, and mm -hmm. I will see one thing, and a whole bunch of people will see one thing, and then another person will see something completely different. But it's the same things you're looking at. And then what what sort of brought it together was like the idea of these paradigms. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think, and it was, we were talking about evolutionary psychology at the time, which is awesome. Um, and he was showing me this thing as here's a criteria. I don't remember exactly the details, but here's a criteria for knowing if something like, uh, was evolved. Mm -hmm. And I read it and I'm like, that's absolute nonsense. And in my thinking is if, um, you know, so where I moved is if I think a field itself, uh, the criteria for evaluating whether something is good is nonsense, then I'm pretty much comfortable not taking anything within that field seriously. Um, okay. And then if I think it's, it, it, you know, the criteria for the field itself is good, then I'll evaluate things based on those criteria within the field. But he showed me the criteria for evolutionary psychology. And I know some of my friends are evolutionary psychologists, so they won't like this. And I thought, this is garbage <laughs> like, so i'm like uh -huh. if somebody actually presented anything to me as proof as as good because it meets these criteria uh, these criteria i would dismiss it like because to me it just this is nonsense um and so but he thought it was amazing like he actually used the word amazing and i thought okay we're just that's why there's this difference right so for him anyone coming from that paradigm they could see a piece of work and think this is amazing work, amazing production, and me being outside that paradigm and not subscribing to it, I would look mm -hmm. at that same work and think, nah, that's useless. And so you see and, and this And do you think lot. there's a fact of the matter, or do you think that you're just coming at it from different frames? It's different frames, because I think one of Kuhn's things, and by the way, I'm, I'm not a philosopher, right, was okay. that 
it's very difficult for people operating on different paradigms to understand the other paradigm, hmm. right? To, to even see it as rational, to even see it as logical. So for me, even on like the race science stuff, like they, like, you know, Kierkegaard and those guys will talk about like how this is like really solid science. And I'll look over and, you know, like geneticists will look at me like, no, that's useless. We're not even going to engage it because it's useless. And mm-hmm. you see that that's, to me, that's really what it is, right? Like they're just operating on different paradigms, different you know views of reality. So like even on their biological race thing, um, you know, someone thinks biological race is fundamentally like this valid and real concept. Then for them reasoning on differences between, you know, psychological differences between races um, makes perfect sense. But okay. if you are looking at it as like, okay, there's no support for that. There's no fun- foundation for, for that idea. Then everything that other person just said is nonsense. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think even on these topics, a lot of those conversations get, you know, they die there before they, they, they go anywhere because mm-hmm. one person's coming from it as like, this makes perfect sense. And the other person like, no, it doesn't. But then how do you talk through that? Right. And Kuhn's view was that you really couldn't, um, hmm. you sort of had to just move people into your own paradigm or until one paradigm took over enough. And at least on the race stuff, I, I, I think it's, it's interesting to see because I think one paradigm essentially has one, right? Like the idea that race is like this biologically, um, you know, useful concept for studying um, genotype mm-hmm. and stuff is pretty fringe, right? Like no matter mm-hmm. what some of them want to tell themselves, it's it's really sort of out there, right? Um, in, in the mainstream of like population genetics and stuff. So there's might be like a couple fields or subfields that actually really engage with this stuff as if it's somewhat meaningful, but... Um, so, so you have a kind of dim view, it seems like, somewhat of evolutionary psychology, which I want to dive into some a little <laughs> bit here. Um, and I'm sympathetic. I, my, my feeling is that, right, and I think I've seen this in other papers about evolutionary psych, that most, almost no one, as far as I know, denies that the brain is a product of evolution or something like that, or even that like some of our behaviors might not have an evolutionary ancestry of some sort. It's the specific concrete claims about certain kinds of behavior that Absolutely. people engage in that that I think people are very reasonably skeptical about. And I'm curious how you would, you know, sort of using your categories of things like pseudoscience, compare it to, uh, on the one hand, something like clinical psychology, what people are doing today, and on the other hand, something like evolutionary biology, um, which, you know, it could both, you know, you could sort of see evolutionary psych as sort of halfway in between those in some ways. Mm, wow. So... I'm, I'm going to get myself in trouble. The whole, <laughs> the whole field of psychology is sort of questionable to me, right? Um, okay. And, and in a lot of ways, mainly because, and it ties into even like the media and the publication standards, a lot of psych, it's, it's here's this hot new finding. And then the next year is like, oh yeah, that finding was completely wrong. It's the complete opposite now. Mm-hmm. Um, the field has had a really bad history of mm-hmm. coming up with like crazy bold ideas of this is how the brain works, right? In whatever mm-hmm. context they're talking about at the moment. And then within no time, it's just thrown out. Oh, told, turns out we were totally wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or somebody follows up right after and like, can't reproduce that, sorry. And so you could trust very little. And as I said, if I question a field, it's very hard for me to believe things within it. At the same time, so in, in, to be nice to everyone, I think even if something is not strong academically, it's useful. Um, okay. So I grew up evangelical, so um, I may have mentioned that before online. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, things like prayer, right? Um, you know, do I really now believe that those prayers are like, you know, reaching god and god is like okay i'm, I'm going to totally give you that promotion that you want uh no uh but at the same time i think the person believing that thing that you know god is really going to help me here might mm-hmm. change their behavior at work and might try harder or might do something so in effect there's a psychological placebo effect and i think mm-hmm. that has use right so even like things like clinical psychology I don't need to believe that everything they're saying is true is true or is correct if it if it helps if it gets the job done um so if you're Mm -hmm. helping a person you know 
uh, improve, like handle their depression better. I don't really care what you think causes that depression. Mm -hmm. Um, so I look for the, the result, but do I believe fundamentally like clinical psychology is the strong field where I'll really trust their claims? No. Um, Uh and that holds for a lot of psychology, but again, I don't, I don't think it's sometimes there's a difference between the academic belief of whether it's true or, or, or strong or not or sound and the utility of it in the real world. And I think a lot of psychology has use and, you know, clearly can be shown like in things like the addiction stuff. Mm-hmm. I was talking to somebody online about like the, the it was about evolutionary psychology and uh, addiction. I don't, if you believe addiction works a certain way and that helps people, um, with their addiction, I'm cool. If your belief is rooted in, you know, something I don't believe to be correct, it's mm-hmm. not that important. And especially if it's not harmful, right? If, if a viewpoint isn't harmful, I don't care that somebody holds it. It's the same right. way I view religion, right? If you believe, you know, let's say the flying spaghetti monster, that won't get me in trouble. Then it doesn't matter to me if at the end of the day, you're nice to people or you're not like going around killing people because this flying spaghetti monster told you to do it. Right. Um, Fair enough. So let me ask you about how you apply your views about psychology into the real world, since you mentioned that you are a father of three um, earlier uh, when we were chatting. Um, And I've had folks who listen to the show, who've listened to like the the Bo debates, you know, sort of push back a little bit with things like, you know, they've said there are two kinds of people in the world, blank slatists and parents. Um, And I'm curious how much how how you would approach sort of a, a concern or a critique like that do you feel like your children have taught you a lot about psychology uh you know <laughs> yes but here okay so here here it is again actually so what i just said ties right mm-hmm. back into this right um like i don't no one really believes you know babies are born blank slates right like every parent mm-hmm. and sort of everyone sort of believes babies are born with some features from their parents for example mm-hmm. um i think i don't need to know what makes um, my son tell bad jokes um, or like bad jokes? At the end of the day, if I tell a really awesome, in my view, terrible in his dad joke, he'll mm-hmm. laugh and I'm happy mm-hmm. to see him laugh, right? So mm-hmm. it, it's like if something works, I don't really care why. Like, so somebody making a claim as to like the fundamental reason why my child laughed at my terrible dad joke, I could care less, right? I'm just mm-hmm. happy. My child is happy. Right. So, and, and even in parenting, like if you have multiple kids, you'll see how different each child is your philosophy. We have all these psychologists who will say, here's how you deal with a child who does X, Y, Z. Right. Mm-hmm. But does any parent really listen to that at the end of the day, whatever gets my child to bed on time, <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. Right. Cause I, I need to go get other stuff done. Right. Um, right. or even so this, like can, the, this can, ma- you know, there can be consequences here though, right? Like if we talk about spanking, for example, should we trust sort of scientific consensus that this is now terrible. harmful or should people still sort of rely on their anecdotal evidence that it works in the moment? See, okay. Ooh, that's, Ooh, that got me. Cause actually I'm one of those people who believe it is always harmful. Uh-huh. Um, and I've seen like the research on that one. Um, I think mm-hmm. you can answer questions empirically, right? Like some questions could be, I don't care why spanking wouldn't work. I could still see the results. Like if someone's showing me data that here's the kids that are spanked, here's how they turn out. Here's the kids that aren't spanked. Here's how they turn out. Controlling for other factors. I could use that. Um, so let's say spanking might even work, right? Mm-hmm. If you still show me in the aggregate that kids who are spanked turns out turn out worse than um, kids weren't spanked. I'm going to say don't spank, right? Um, okay. If someone could somebody find like a, a case where hitting a child is the best solution? Yeah, okay. That's sure. I guess. <laughs> I, I guess in, in theory, it could it could make sense, right? Like I I don't I wouldn't want to be an absolutist on that mm-hmm. one. Um, so I'm comfortable making the aggregate statement that don't do it. Um, and you should probably need a I'd raise the bar for somebody to justify like, yeah, I hit my kid yesterday um, for me to understand like, okay, so mm-hmm. was your kid trying to stab you with a knife or something? Um, right. So uh-huh. it yeah. can be, it, it, it just right. You tip the, the consequentialist bar. scales enough, right? You can yeah. always justify most things. And I said yeah. it one way that 
before like that. It, it, it's, I evaluate a lot of things based on uh, utility and harm. Mm-hmm. Um, so even seeing the research will move sort of my priors, if you will, on how harmful I see something is. But that doesn't mean that it's never useful. Like I'm very rarely absolutist like that. Um, Fair enough. So there could be some case where it's useful. I'll just evaluate it in terms of uh, that and the harm it causes. Right on. Um, so we're getting a little short on time, and I want to get to our lightning round. But before Ooh. we do that, I always try to end on a little bit of advice. Are there any like best, worst practices kind of stuff that you want to share with folks about engaging in debate that you haven't already sort of imparted? Um, well, I think the key is trying to just understand the other person, um, okay. understand where they're coming from, try to understand their views. And I'm not a youth, you have to be civil thing. Um, mm-hmm. I think for me, though, I look for mainly intellectual honesty, um, that willingness to say someone's made a good point, if they've made a good point, um, that willingness to say, you know what, that's, you know, I've changed my view a little bit. is sort of always kind of cool to see. Um, mm-hmm. I, res- I, I usually respect that. And you're going to meet people online. There are some people who I don't think are really worth it engaging because you know their their lost cause, if you will, right? Um, right? And those people are either purely for the sake of, say, the audience to educate others. Um, and if you're not going to see even them being constructive even in that way, there's just no point wasting your time. You'll just burn yourself out. It's so hard because I, I want to feel that everyone is reachable. And I feel like the, the discussion around reachability is sometimes condescending. But I also understand <laughs> what you're saying, that we should also be realistic about, you know, on how, on what timeline is everybody reachable. Um, well, great. So let's scale. Yeah, right on geologic scale. Um, so let's talk lightning rounds. Um, so you're is... you're a listener, so you're familiar with this, how this torture works. But for uh, new listeners, here's how our game is played. You have the option of uh, you're going to get a list of things, and you get to tell me whether it is real or not real. You okay. don't have to define what that word means in this particular context, but you also don't get to hedge halfway through. So are you ready? Not really. Let's do it. so your readiness is not real is that what you're saying exactly okay great here we go the external world real okay colors real phenomenal consciousness not real hmm free will real selves real genders real races not mm, on a hedge but okay not real okay Uh, that's right feel the burn uh (laughs) species real morality not real rights not real knowledge real Mm. gods not real society real numbers real holes holes yeah <laughs> real you know like the straw you know a hole yeah real uh, okay. chairs oh real <laughs> <laughs> uh doomed uh sandwiches delicious uh real <laughs> Delicious, delicious. All right. Uh, Science. Real. Natural laws. Real. Mm Mm-hmm. Beauty. Not real. Causality. Real. And finally, dharmas. Unknown. And you're not not familiar. To be um, in the Buddhist, they're like the smallest, like monads. Have you you heard of monads? Oh. like the smallest parts of reality yeah, or something yeah. like basic uh, phenomenal experiences or something like that. Not real. Not real. Okay. Congratulations. You survived. <laughs> How do you feel? <laughs> like myself. Which ones, were the, which ones were the particularly horrible ones for you? The race one, right? Because very uh, different depending on context. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's tricky. Um, I you had I think probably more reels than I think a lot of people do. I think the one that was most surprising to me was real on colors, but not real on phenomenal consciousness. Okay. So if I was to explain <laughs> this, because for computers, for computers, you could 
and code colors, right? So it's a very okay. specific representation is the mm. color. So if I'm thinking of it from a, a person's perspective, it's not real. But from a computer's perspective, it's absolutely real. Amazing. Okay, I appreciate that. That's that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you um, so much for chatting about these things. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you again? Um, I think everyone can find me at Rasmansa um, on Twitter. Um, yeah, that's it. Pretty much great. All right. Well, yeah. thank you so much. And I look forward to continuing to follow your discussions on Twitter. Thank you. Have a good one.